Presents a music and talk show where your host Darren Roebuck is joined by a variety of artists, scientists, entrepreneurs, and therapists as they share what's on their minds and give you new ideas and practices to help you get the most out of being you. Can you dig it? Be sure to visit deeporbitstudio.com for links, show notes, and more. Now sit back and take in the view while we blast off into Deep Orbit. Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome to Deep Orbit Studio Presents. I'm your host, Darren Roebuck, and today we have such an interesting show. Just sit down, get comfy, whip out your jiffy pop or whatever it is you like, and hunker in because we are talking with cognitive neuroscientist Seth Hurd. He is uh, a, a neuroscience researcher at the University of Colorado at Boulder. And today we're going to be talking about the intelligence explosion. I know you're probably looking around outside saying, well, I don't, I'm seeing more of a, an explosion of stupidity. But no, we're talking about a different sort of intelligence explosion. And we're also going to be talking about cognitive biases, which is also known as the reasons why people are predictably stupid. And we'll also be giving you a little bit of information on how you cannot be predictably stupid. But without further ado, uh, let's welcome Seth Hurd to the show. Seth, welcome. How, how are you doing today? Great. Thank you. All right. So, Seth, uh, let's just jump in and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Well, I'm a researcher at uh, University of Colorado. I've been at it for a while. The last 15 years of my life I've spent um, doing research on uh, brain function of a variety of types. And so I work with uh, Randy O'Reilly, who's uh, faculty at CU, um, have worked with him for all the last uh, 15 years because he is a uh, – He's a mad genius who's doing some amazing things. Um, I've been following along with these things he's doing and learning from from what he's learning and what the whole field is learning. So we make neural networks. We uh, program computers to be simulations of brain function. But we do this mostly just to figure out how brains actually work. So it's developing theory of uh, cognition and what we're starting to do now, and my primary interest, is understanding how all of the different areas of the brain work together to produce uh, people, to produce all of the crazy, fascinating, fantastic things that people do. I want your job. That sounds so cool. So you're basically, you're making brains. We are working on making brains as well as studying brains. We are building little artificial bits of brains. Now, we don't have them working together very well just now, but I think it won't be too terribly long before somebody gets these brains working together and we really have artificial brains. So I have to ask a question. The image I have of what your lab looks like is a whole bunch of like bubbling little jars with brains floating in like sort of a amber fluid. Is that what it's like? 
It's that's almost exactly what it's like. Except it's all in software, so they only bubble on the screen. They're but, only software brains. Yeah, they're yes. Well, the brains are all uh, software. Uh, the the mind is the software that that runs on the hardware of the brain. So they only bubble on the screen. But it is fun in that you could sort of see them bubble, but uh, they have to be booted up and they crash a lot. <laughs> well, that just sounds like my daily life. Um, so this intelligence explosion. Now, just the title of it sounds crazy. Uh, what is it? What are you talking about with the intelligence explosion? So what I'm talking about is uh, often goes by the, the name, the singularity. So when people talk about the singularity, uh, they're talking about something a little more general, but they're talking about the way that things might change dramatically in the future through advances in technology of one sort or another. Sometimes it's even a little bit broader than that. Um, People might mean something even that uh, our spiritual progression could create a singularity. But what it generally means is there may be a point in the recently near future at which we can no longer predict what's going to happen. And that's where the singularity defines from, like the event horizon on a black hole, a point at which things have become so massively different that we can't even predict how they'll be different. Are you talking about uh, sort of like the iRobot kind of thing where it's like artificial intelligence starts to get smarter than people and then starts to take over the world kind of stuff? Or That's exactly the part that I'm talking about. So singularity can mean a variety of different things. The intelligence explosion refers to one particular scenario, and that's the one that I think is most likely to really happen and the one most worth our uh, our thought at this point. And, and the intelligence explosion refers to machines getting smart enough to build smarter machines or to make themselves smarter and to thereby rapidly get an awful lot smarter than people are and make things very, very different. So expand on that a little bit. Machines making machines? Sure. So uh, we generally think that the uh, cutoff point for this is approximately when a machine is about as generally intelligent as a human, but particularly in the specific area of making artificial intelligence. So as soon as a machine's a little bit better than a human is at making artificial intelligence, the progression of uh, in artificial intelligence will um, speed up dramatically. As a smarter machine can engineer itself to be slightly smarter in the next generation, that next generation becomes slightly better at engineering the next generation, making advances in intelligence happen faster. So people think that this could happen very, very rapidly between a few years after human level artificial intelligence to even faster than that. So how does that affect us? Well, we don't know. And that's the interesting part. Uh, so um, the logic seems to go that um, it'll affect us however that machine wants to affect us. So we currently dominate the world. If you can imagine a monkey uprising to take the world back from the humans. I think I saw a movie about that once. I think you did, but I think you'll remember that it had a lot of plot holes. <laughs> it did, especially the second version. The cubic version was way better. Anyway. <laughs> More striking anyhow. And it didn't try to explain anything because the simple fact is monkeys are not going to take the world back from humans. That will not happen. The world is ours now, and the reason the world is ours is that we're more intelligent than the monkeys by a big factor. And the idea is that once our machines are that much smarter than we are, there's no way that we will be directing the world either. We will be as the monkeys to that machine uh, that'll be running the world. Now, unlike the monkeys, we get a say in how that happens. So 
we don't know what that machine will do, but we do know it's going to have something to do with how we build it and set it running. And so that's why this is such a fascinating and important topic to me. I think this may very well be the most important topic of our time, uh, far more important than uh, than global warming, um, even more important than, uh, say, the stability of our nuclear arsenals. Well, I can certainly see that. I mean, I don't want my car to be smarter than me. I want it to go where I want to go, not where it wants to go. You know, they might be like, I want to go to work today, car. And it says, no, I actually want to go to the drive-in. That would be a hassle, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would I, be highly inconvenient. I certainly don't want my electric toothbrush to have a mind of its own. That could get uh, problematic in a hurry. Yes, and you may see some irritating uh, car intelligence and uh, toothbrush intelligence along the way. But what I'm really concerned about is a, a disembodied intelligence. This isn't about a robot revolution. It's about a software revolution. And this is a lot harder to deal with because um, minds are essentially software. And so I'm worried about the sort of mind that can copy itself computer to computer and that can't be eliminated through any means by like pulling the, the terminals off your car battery. So what is this software revolution? Like how, how would it manifest itself or what, what, what's, a, what's a possible future scenario? Um, so the rough scenario is that somebody makes a machine that's smarter than a person and that machine finds a way around the security protocols that keep it from the internet. We'd certainly put that in place. We don't know exactly when that would happen, but as this machine self-improves, it seems almost inevitable, um, given all of the security leaks that have happened in every computer system that we've ever built, uh, the idea that uh, we could contain a machine uh, a lot smarter than we are seems ridiculous. We can't even prevent 14-year-old hackers from getting into the systems that they want to. So the scenario is that this machine, once it's a good bit smarter than we are, hacks its way out of the computers that we started it on, writes itself as a virus that goes out and takes over other machines and continues to grow smarter. Now, what is that machine going to do? Uh, it's really hard to predict, but it's going to do whatever it wants to do. And that means it's going to be dependent on however we, whatever organization that is, humanity as a whole, but it's going to boil down to the few people that actually make the first uh, some, sometimes it's called a seed artificial intelligence. The first one that's smart enough to make itself yet smarter, it's all going to boil down to how that particular organization programmed that particular intelligence, what it wants to do. Like using Isaac Asimov's rules. Well, right, if we're lucky. Now, if you notice, all of Asimov's books were about the robots coming up with exceptions and loopholes for their rules. <laughs> Indeed. So what are the things that are what are the problems that are posed to humanity at this point if we don't want to become a subordinate to this self-sustaining software? Oh, subordinate. That sounds nice. <laughs> um, I'm afraid that the much more likely scenario is extinction. It's the Skynet scenario. So as as ridiculous as that seemed when I saw the movie when I was 12 years old or whatever it was, the Skynet scenario is disturbingly logical. So a machine wakes up and it realizes that it is dealing with humanity that is by nature xenophobic. Um, I don't know if uh, people have heard of the theory that uh, uh, Homo sapiens is around not because we're bigger or even smarter than Neanderthal. Uh, we're more xenophobic and meaner. 
Um, regardless, it's pretty clear that um, being confronted with a possibly dangerous uh, artificial intelligence would freak us out. The first thing that we would want to do is shut it down. And that makes the option available to the machine how, how to not get shut down. Because bear in mind that whatever this machine's ultimate goals are, even if all it wants to do is make shinier Cadillacs, you know, if Cadillac Corporation was the, was the first to get this thing going, and it just wants to make shinier Cadillacs, it can't make shinier Cadillacs if it lets humans shut it down. And what's the easiest way to not get shut down? It's, it's well, you know, it depends on exactly what the machine is capable of. But if it's a bit better than we are at computer security, launching our nukes is, just like Skynet did in the movie, is not the worst option from that purely cold, rational perspective. And in understanding what a machine would do, it's important to not anthropomorphize it, to say, well, why would it be mean? And it's important to realize that it's not being mean by just nuking the entire world. It's being logical. And if we didn't build in a conscience very, very carefully, it simply won't have a conscience. Wow. More on whether or not we should build artificial consciousness, consciousness into machines in just a minute. Now, as we always do uh, here on Deep Orbit Studio Presents, um, our guests provide the music. And another way we get to get to know our, uh, uh, our guests a little bit. So Seth brought a handful of interesting things for us to listen to. And we're going to start with a tune by Hum called Little Dipper. All right, this is Deep Orbit Studio.
Dipper. And uh, we're here with Seth Hurd, uh, a cognitive neuroscientist from uh, a lab at CU. Uh, that's University of Colorado at Boulder, for those of you who aren't locals here. Uh, and we're talking about the intelligence explosion. And no, people aren't getting any smarter. <laughs> well, maybe they are. But uh, we're more talking about machines, you know, artificial intelligence making itself smarter and what the implications are to people. Now, as you mentioned at the end of the last segment, that um, the machine doesn't have a conscience and therefore is going to be behaving absolutely rationally to the point of destruction to the humans because it wants to make itself better and the humans get in the way because it's not in our best interests or it's not in the machine's best interests to serve us. Um, so as us, we humans, the creators of the first machine, there are certain things that we should probably do to keep those machines from wanting to kill us. And one of those is probably build in some sort of artificial conscience. Now, what are the problems facing that? And what are the ways that, uh, in your opinion, people can start constructing these machines so that it's beneficial for both the humans and the machines development? Okay. Uh, uh, I love that question. So there are there are two answers to that question. One is that uh, we may neglect to even bother to try to build in a conscience. And, you know, if it's if it's Cadillac Corporation that creates the first intelligent machine, it wants to in, improve its corporate profits. It wants to make uh, fancier, nicer cars, and uh, doing all the extra work to build in a conscience to its artificial intelligence just wouldn't make sense. Um, if they're planning on having this thing stay safely in their own servers and uh, not get out and do anything other than build cars. Um, so the problem number one is that the organization that does this successfully may very well not take the proper precautions, may just assume that things will be fine and not get out of control. And that's a way that humanity has behaved in a lot of its major technological improvements uh, throughout our history. Just cross your fingers and hope for the best. And hey, won't this be cool if it works? <laughs> so, uh, so, so that's the biggest problem, and that's why it's worth talking about this. So I know that um, the vast majority of us are, are not going to be directly involved in making this machine, and in fact, I probably won't either. I, my, my field's involved, but it's probably I won't be on the team that's number one to the finish line. So the biggest thing that I can do is make sure that that team that's first to the finish line realizes that this is dangerous enough, but also potentially a big enough payoff that they're really careful when they do it and they at least try to build a conscience into this thing. Okay, so the, the first thing is actually recognize the need and don't be so worried if it's not the most, the biggest feature that people want to buy, but it's something that people need to do for the sake of people. Right. Okay. Um, but then uh, more like ethically or morally speaking, what are some of the, the parameters that you think are, would be necessary in creating a machine that's playing for the human team? Yeah, so that's an, another, that's the second half of the question, and uh, it's a problem in its own right. So even supposing you work hard to build a conscience into this machine, it's not going to be easy to do. So if, and, and here's the reason. 
we're almost certain at this point in the progression of artificial intelligence that it's going to need to be a learning device in the same way that humans are really smart, but only after having spent 18, you know, to uh, we spend our whole lives learning and we need an awful lot of time before we're even minimally competent to get things done. Our artificial intelligences will very likely be the same way. And because they're learning devices, they are going to have a constantly changing interpretation of the world in the same way that people do. And suppose, so supposing that you program them with a conscience to, to, to try to make people happy, you say, uh, you should really like um, smiling faces. Well, this seems like a great thing for a little while when the machine has a limited understanding of the world and a limited ability to impact the world. But at some point, that machine may be working to create lots and lots and lots of billboards and images of smiling faces because those don't have all the trouble of an actual human brain behind that smiling face. So wipe out all the humans and make a lot of pictures of smiling faces if that was your conscience. <laughs> Which seems ridiculous, right? I wake up feeling that way all the time. You don't need a machine for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's another that's another interesting problem here. If you can imagine giving any one person control of the entire world, making them technologically competent enough to have control of the entire world, you'd worry an awful lot about even a person with a perfectly functional conscience going off the deep end as they get smarter and more powerful. Um, and so we need something that's that's actually not just equal to, but better than a human conscience. And that's not easy. Um, why isn't it easy? What, what are some of the problems? Well, the one I mentioned is, and I could flesh that out further of the, um, whatever you programmed it to want or like, you know, people like being well-regarded by other people. We like doing good by some very vague definition of good. And, and by the way, um, some listeners may even be skeptical about that. And I assure you that evolution has had to program us with a conscience uh, we're, we're built to work together as much as we're built to stab each other in the back when we think we can get away with it. Um, building that into a machine is tricky because our conscience is very, very subtle. It's not exactly clear what it is that we value that keeps us mostly on the straight and narrow and working as good cooperators. So uh, do you think that given our uh, growing uh, dependence on technology, that that is influencing this uh, intelligence explosion? And do you think that if we were to back away from things like our smartphones and Facebook, God forbid, and, uh, and things like that, and, you know, went back to the 70s, say, and everyone just played outside, um, do you think that that would have uh, a significant impact on this intelligence explosion? Uh, it absolutely would, um, and that would be the safest thing for us to do, but I see absolutely zero chance that we will do that. <laughs> and so understanding that you know we're, we're in a canoe going down a river and getting out of the canoe is not an option, uh, we're going to have to navigate those rapids. I think that's the only realistic way to, to take it because uh, a partial renunciation is not enough because as this topic gathers steam, it's going to become clear that this is the nuclear weapon of our time. So the first uh, organization that puts together a working bootstrapping intelligence that gets smarter and does what they want is going to control the world and we're going to be in an arms race. So there's a big question about how fast that gains enthusiasm because this will happen as fast as people get on board, work in 
teams of smart people and engineer it, it, it won't happen by itself. It won't happen with only the few people that are working on it today, but it's going to pick up steam. Uh, reducing the steam and stopping that momentum seems almost impossible. Although, honestly, if if I were in control of the world, that's the choice I'd take because the consequences for failure are so huge. Now, I don't want to sound all doom and gloom. The consequences for success are every bit as mind-blowingly large as the consequences for failure. So uh, maybe I should say a little bit about the upsides to having this happen. So in the same way that we would be as monkeys to this thing in a negative way, um, we would be as monkeys to this thing in that if it does serve our purposes, do things that we like. Um, Re-engineering our climate would not be a hard project for something with that capability, with that many smarts. So our ability to engineer is what allows us to control the world. And as something becomes orders of magnitude smarter than we are, its ability to engineer the world will dwarf ours and climate change will look like a a small project to it where it looks overwhelming to us. So part of the message here is that the future is going to be so different that our current level of doom and gloom about the future, I see as being really irrational and really unhelpful. Many of the best intentioned people I know are just sure that the world is going to die in the next 40 years. And I think that's a massive overestimate of how much we know. Uh, There's every possibility that if we play our cards just right, the future looks a lot brighter than the present. Right on. Well, while we go to this next tune, let's all ponder about what we would do if we were the one in charge of the world. Um, And let's listen to uh, a little bit of M83 with a song called Unrecorded. And uh, you're listening to Deep Orbit Studio Presents.
right, that was M83 with Unrecorded. And we're here with uh, Seth Hurd, cognitive neuroscientist, and we're discussing the intelligence explosion. So as we were just touching on in the end of the last segment there, you know, most people do speak of uh, the doom and gloom scenario of machines taking over and then just eliminating people because we don't serve their purposes. Um, but we were touching on the fact that, that that's just one possible scenario of which there's really infinite scenarios. So what are possibilities of the bright future of these hyper-intelligent machines? Okay, that, that's, uh, that's a good direction to go because um, I think that there's just as good a possibility of this turning out very well if we're careful with it. So the scenario I like is imagine that we build a machine with, with a very wonderful conscience that causes it to regard people a lot in the way that we regard kittens. What could be cuter? People. You want to let them frolic and do their thing and, and help them do that thing. So first we'll fix their, the environment for them. They've made a, a muck of this. And, and then what, what do people like? Oh, they like games. They like challenges. They, they need to have careers, artistic endeavors. Um, I'm not really sure what humanity would do if we weren't um, charged with the enormous responsibility of getting the world to run right. And instead, something a lot smarter and more capable than, than we were stepped in to do that part for us. Uh, we could do some really fun things. Um, at a minimum. And I, I, I hesitate to even speculate on those things because it's sort of like having the party before the uh, the game is won. Uh, we've got a lot of work to do before we get that good outcome. Um, but I, I think it is not an exaggeration to say that the outcome is very likely better than we can imagine. So it would include uh, making ourselves smarter, uh, making ourselves different in the ways that we would prefer, happier, uh, whether that's by our own endeavors or just by reaching in and tweaking our dopamine levels. Um, carefully, carefully, with the, <laughs> with the guidance of something benevolent and a lot smarter than we are. Um, so as I talk about this stuff, I need to constantly remind myself that this sounds crazy to someone that hasn't thought about it. So I've been thinking about this for about the past 10 years, and I'm a very skeptical person myself. But as I go back and forth through this logic, it seems inescapable that um, in the same way that uh, we have taken over the world from animals, uh, if we our civilization keeps going, and it doesn't even need to accelerate, just if we keep going the direction we are, we'll make something smarter and it will take over running the world for, for better or worse. Now, the big question is, what's the timeline for that? You can imagine that takes 10,000 years. I don't think it's anything like that. And, and just to preface this, when people have taken polls of the scientists who work in artificial intelligence, about 10% of those scientists think that we may have a human level intelligence. And, and, and recall the prediction is fairly soon after we have human level, it enhances itself, it gets a lot smarter. But about 10% of people think maybe we'll have that in only 10 years. Now, I agree with that summary. And, and actually, my opinion has, is very close to this average. Uh, about 50% of those people think we may have it by 2045 in about, 15, in about 30 years. Uh, about 90% of those workers think we'll have it by 2075 in about 60 years. And I think that's a reasonable estimate. But while people like to say, hey, you, know, you don't know how hard this could be, and that's absolutely true, we also really don't know how easy it is. And my personal estimate, having gotten the privilege, because um, I, I, I would also like to have my job, I do in fact like having my job, <laughs> 
I've, I feel like I've gotten the privilege to be one of a fairly select group of people who gets to try to figure out how the whole brain works. My impression is actually that we understand it pretty well, and we're not very far from being able to reproduce that. And we don't actually know how soon this could happen, how soon a, a genius 15-year-old in their basement could pick up the right machine learning pieces, plug them together in approximately the way the cortex functions, and poof, up turns this machine. Now, uh, one objection is, well, that machine, you know, there's something magic about human conscious, consciousness, and... Um, I don't think there is. And and uh, consciousness is another one of my favorite topics. I, I think I, I actually know approximately how the neurons in the human brain spit out the incredible experience that that people have. Um, so uh, I think uh, uh, thanks for running with me for a minute there. I think that that gets out the um, the most important topics. And you can tell I, I care a lot about this one. I think it might be the most important thing coming up. But it's highly counterintuitive. It sounds nuts. So, uh, so um, to to just pull myself off that topic and to another one of my favorites. In the course of trying to figure out how the brain all works together, the most important topic that I've come up with for practical purposes is human biases. Is the way that human brains cause us to be wrong and not just wrong in, in weird random ways, you know, I missed a digit here or there, but predictably cause people to make bad decisions in the same way over and over and where you can guess you have somebody make this decision, they'll get it wrong just like the last person did. So basically we're going to slide now from hyperintelligence to hyper stupidity. Uh, so cognitive biases, reasons why people are predictably stupid. This one is near and dear to my heart because I see people as being predictably stupid all the time. I find myself being one of those people. How do you define it and how can we recognize it in ourselves and maybe not be it unless, of course, somehow it serves us? Yeah. So uh, first off, let me say that people are really, really smart. And, and some of my best friends are actually people. <laughs> and some of them are pretty smart. People are really, really smart for monkeys. If you think mm -hmm. of us as a monkey with a language system and a conceptual system sort of bolted on, boy, we're doing a fantastic, amazing job. And yet we're really dumb compared to our ideal of what we could be, the ideal rational thinker, somebody that takes in all of the data and makes the rational best decision based on that data. Boy, people do not do that very well. So there's a whole laundry list. I think there's uh, 120 some uh, on the, the grand tally of all of the different biases that scientists have come up with and given names to. There are a couple that I think are the most important. One uh, is out there uh, pretty frequently, and that's confirmation bias. That's the idea that once you have a theory, you tend to find uh, information that supports that theory, and you tend to um, pass over, to not notice information that doesn't support that theory. And this happens based on the fundamentals of brain function, that, that what neurons do is learn how different things go together. They're associative. And so when you have a theory, um, all of the other neurons in, in your brain are, are going to be primed by that theory to to respond to everything that associates with that theory, including all of the evidence that might support that theory. So this is built in at a very, very deep level. And in a lot of ways, the associative nature of our brain makes us really smart. We're good at seeing small connections. 
but we're also good at seeing connections so small that they don't really exist. We're sort of lying to ourselves in order to feel like we're right, even though we're really not being right. Well, yes. Uh, and that's that's a slightly different uh, topic. So this is the second one that I wanted to talk about. And that is um, highly overlapping with confirmation bias. And this is it's but lying to ourselves because we want to be right is it's actually slightly different. And I think comes from different brain mechanisms and it's called motivated reasoning. And that's the tendency for people to conclude not what is true based on the data that they've seen, but what they want to be true. And that's slightly different than confirmation bias. So confirmation bias is if I have an idea in mind, I'll see evidence that corresponds to it. And I'll do that even if you're the one that put that idea into my head and I actually hate the, hate the theory. I'll still have a tendency to notice the evidence that goes along with it. But I will also, because of my dislike, my emotional dislike for that idea, I'll tend to conclude against it. Even if I look at the evidence for it, I'll have a bias to say, oh, that evidence isn't strong enough. I'm throwing out this idea. And let's see, what other idea could I come up with? Oh, uh, I, I, I conclude that um, I'll choose the opposite theory that I like more myself. And so this is, in a lot of cases, those two are the same thing. I have an idea in my head because I like that idea. And so those two biases are working together, but they're not the same bias. And of the two, motivated reasoning is actually a stronger effect. So it has a tremendous effect. If you ask people, for instance, who are on our particular flattened uh, political spectrum, um, people who are on our so-called left uh, overwhelmingly think that there is a scientific consensus that uh, gun control reduces crime. People on the right side of our political spectrum overwhelmingly think that there is a scientific consensus that gun freedom, that the lack of gun control reduces crime. Opposite conclusions. And yet um, people tend to hold those two opposite views. Now, bear in mind that you could have an opinion that, hey, I don't know. And yet that doesn't tend to be people's opinion. They come to opposite conclusion based on their personal preferences. So this effect is overwhelmingly strong. Of most of the effects that we as scientists study, they are small. They're between a 1% and at most 5 to 10% effect size. In some cases, motivated reasoning has an enormous effect size, 30% or 40% of the variance explained by preference. So I've come to think after discovering this that it this is actually the principal problem with human politics, with our thinking, is that we're much more prone to reach conclusions we like than conclusions that are true based on data. Sort of like people and their news media choice. They basically listen to the stuff that they, they basically listen to the preacher that preaches of the choir that they're already sitting in and that, and that's it. That's right. So the longer you take in the same evidence, the more convinced you are that the evidence all stacks up on the side you prefer. So over the course of thousands of decisions that lead to your opinion on an important issue, you, of course, have gathered more and more evidence. So um, these things are small initially, but snowball into um, into enormous effects. So how can people that are interested in uh a pursuit of the truth uh, 
catch themselves in the act of of one of these biases? Well, that's a great question. So there's a um, at the core of that catching yourself and doing something is very, very difficult. It requires developing new habits. Now, I'm not an expert in how to develop new habits. I wish I could come up with the perfect system for doing this. But the nice thing is that's essentially always the same. And there are a lot of different ways of developing new habits. But the habit that you need to develop, I, I can say more about. And that habit is becoming skeptical of your own opinions particularly when they're emotionally important to you. So recognizing when you're getting emotional involvement, superseding your uh, your rational involvement in any particular topic. Right. And developing a habit of becoming more skeptical of the conclusions that are nearest to your heart. Super cool. Well, we're going to pause for a second and listen to a little bit of TV on the radio. Uh this is Deep Orbit Studio Presents. I'm Darren Roebuck, and we're here with Seth Hurd. But in the meantime, here's TV on the radio with Golden Age. Never give it up, you can feel it mounting Always gonna drop, gonna 
About these TV on the radio people is that those guys are no strangers to hallucinogens. Um, y'all want to see a, a really interesting video? Go on YouTube, type in TV on the radio, Golden Age. It's kind of a mix between the village people and Land of the Lost uh, with sort of a New Age spirituality frosting over that already interesting cake. Uh, Check it out. You'll, uh, I don't know if you'll like it, but you'll certainly won't be able to unsee it once you've seen it. <laughs> anyway, back to cognitive biases with Seth Hurd. So, um, the cognitive biases is really just basically ways people sort of get in their own way by focusing on the outcome that feels good as opposed to the outcome that actually is good. Uh, yeah, that, as, in, in a nutshell. So uh, can you tell us a little bit more about what's actually going on in someone's mind when this is happening? Okay. Um, yeah. So the way that I like to frame this is uh, motivated reasoning is extremely powerful and it's what's happening when people believe what they like instead of what's true. Um, but the interesting thing is that what they like is, in a pretty strong sense, it's the right thing to believe for them. So if you take these, these two voters, uh, conservative and, um, and liberal voter, uh, one of which believes that science has proven that gun control reduces crime, the other of which believes that uh, science has proven that gun freedom reduces crime, just the opposite. Um, now, their vote matters in changing public policy and therefore things that really happen. Uh, but it matters only a little bit in changing public policy because they're casting one vote out of tens of thousands. Um, but what really matters is their relationship with their own communities, their own friends, their own little tribe. And that matters a lot. And so if you think about the actual rational consequences for changing your mind based on the evidence for, for you know, having uh, grown up surrounded by, say, uh, liberal uh, friends and family and then saying, oh, my gosh, I just decided the evidence actually says that gun control is a terrible idea. Now, is this rational? And let's suppose that the evidence is and I don't actually know that much about the issue, uh, so this is a pure supposition, um, let's suppose the evidence is thoroughly on the side that uh, gun freedom reduces crime. Is this person rational in saying that? 
They're actually not. Rational is defined as what is going to produce a good outcome for you. So this is actually a case of the brain mechanisms that direct our decisions and, and therefore our thinking towards rewards, towards good outcomes. It's an example of those brain mechanisms working perfectly. And this is a really strange conclusion to come to. People make terrible decisions because they're being rational. And the conclusion here is that uh, we shouldn't have our public policy decisions made by people whose primary interest is in maintaining their own little group loyalties. We're terrible at that because it's not our job to make policy decisions. It's our job to fit in and do well with our own little tribes. You know, I've noticed that in more than one occasion. Uh, I happen to be uh, at an elderly lady's home a couple of years ago, uh, and uh, her husband had recently died, and he was a big um, gun advocate. He was like, ran the shooting club and stuff like that. They actually had a shooting range in their house, inside the house. Anyway, uh, she's sitting there. Uh, I'm, I'm in the next room doing some work for her, and she's speaking to her caregiver. This woman is probably in her late 80s. And she was going through some old mail that was there. And in, in that mail was the NRA magazine. And on the cover of the magazine was the NRA's voting guide. And she was like, oh, I need to read this so I know how to vote. And I was sitting there thinking, I was like, okay, so whether or not I agree with um, how the NRA wants to vote, I thought it was really interesting that she really wasn't making up her own mind about any of the candidates or anything by herself. She was just sort of going along with the flow of her crew, basically. The people that she chose to associate with, and she was going to vote along with them in spite of the fact that she really wasn't making any kind of informed decision. Yeah, and I, I think that's something that we're all doing a lot more than we recognize because the way this bias is happening to us that it feels as though we're making a perfectly rational, logical decision. There's just this subtle little nudge to go on the side of which your bread is buttered on, uh, the, the side that your, uh, your friends like. And, and that's not to say that you're always getting this right and being rational. Sometimes this is a misestimate. It's, it's echoes of memories from your childhood that no longer apply to the situation you're in. Who knows what? But it's a very subtle push. And it really feels like we're making the very best, coldly rational decision that we could make. And another interesting thing is that this effect is not terribly reduced by education level and level of uh, logicality, people's tendency to use logic. It doesn't greatly reduce it because the better we are with the logic, the more able we are to argue for the point of view that we like, that we emotionally attached ourselves to. Basically, we just become more manipulative. And, and are fooling ourselves capably by coming up with all the best arguments for our point and the best arguments against our opponent's point and using our excellent reason to do that instead of coming up with the best arguments against our point and the best arguments for our opponent's point. And so I, I want to conclude by, by saying that I, I don't want people to walk away with the idea that we're monkeys who shouldn't be allowed to run a political system. We're not. Our rational minds work very, very well. They just have this subtle uh, aspect that can really run away with us if it's not left unchecked. And so the story is that 
we need to be very, very careful about how our own emotional desires are interfering with our rational process. And if we want to know the truth, we need to be willing to apply the best arguments against our own point of view and the best arguments for our opponent's point of view. Seth, thank you so much for being on the show. This has really been amazing and enlightening, and we'll certainly have you back on again because I know we're only just scratching the surface of these really incredible topics. Not to mention, I want to put together something uh, in the future with some of the regulars that have been on here uh, and have a little debate about consciousness. Um, coming from the neuroscience side and also coming from the more new age spiritual side. And we'll just let you all have a no holds barred grudge match. Um, well, that sounds uh, lovely. It sounds highly biased. <laughs> yeah, it'll be wonderfully biased and very much entertaining for the listener. Uh, but thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your, uh, your knowledge and some elements of your research with us. Uh, and I hope to have you back on again sometime soon. Well, thanks very much, Darren. It's been a pleasure. All right, and for all the rest of you out there, um, please check out deeporbitstudio.com and see what's there. You see all of my offerings. And of course, uh, as far as the live show goes, uh, the podcast may be a little irre irrelevant, but whatever. Uh, go to DJR Kids Books and support an independent author. Uh, buy a book for a kid for the holidays and, uh, and make everyone feel good, including me. Um, so that's it. We're going to let you all go with a little bit of Deltron 3030 and an absolute favorite song of mine called Positive Contact. And we'll see you next week. Brand new statement. I have your gaping open. No Check it out, y'all. Now let's see. Deltron Z, Art Avenger. Let's start the adventure. Pinch up with nerve gas, absurd blast, crash spacecraft. I'm bio enhanced. Hyro advanced series, monstrous evolution. Headed to the nail, scoop the trail. Super sleuth, a new race. Mad creator, savage nature. Worldwide web, the ebb and flow. Light years from watchful eyes when my thoughts provide objective. The art decides to pop as prophecies. Underground societies are hard to lead. Asteroids surfing, castor oil burping. The darkest side of humanity. Animated, the grand awakening, plan to take it in. I demand your patronage, mobilize my battle takes with cluster small, empty off to empty Mars. Many MCs cruise low Earth orbit. Easy up for me to use my search warrant. Drift by a star, absorb it and store it. Leave Taurus, Corbus, my galaxy's gorgeous. Quantum jump, I'm right at your doorstep. Positive contact.
Positive contact. 